Hello and welcome to episode three of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today are Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Hey, how are you? And we've got Johnny Sisson in Chicago. Hello, Johnny. Hey, good morning. Last week we spoke about three of our favourite lenses, the Helios 103, the Voigtlander Superwide Helia and the Carl Zeiss 50mm f1.4. This week we're going to talk about a range of lenses by Pentax, but before I say the name it's worth pointing out that none of us know the correct pronunciation of these lenses, so we'll be happy to hear from anybody yeah, that can give us the correct anglicised pronunciation. So today we're talking about the Pentax Super Takumar lenses, or the Super Takuma lenses, or whatever else this is going to be the correct pronunciation. And for the purposes of this discussion, we'll be talking about the 50 to 55 millimeter Takimars and not about the older M37 lenses. The earliest version of these Pentax lenses was the Auto Takimars with the lever operated preset aperture that takes a bit of getting used to. Pentax then introduced the more sophisticated Super Takuma with an improved coating and an automatic iris. The downside here is that the 10 blades or more of the auto Takimars were reduced to 6 to enable the auto diaphragm to operate at the required speed. The most famous Super Takuma is the 8-element 50mm f1.4, which legend tells us was developed by Pentax not only to take on the German lens giant Zeiss, but to beat them at their own game. The 50mm f1.4 went through many iterations, most notably when it quietly lost an element and gained radioactivity. The next step in the life of the Takumas was the super multi-coated Takuma, which in turn led to the SMC lenses with the later K-mount. Perhaps, Johnny, you can give us your take on them. Uh, well, I mean, I can speak from, I guess, from my own personal experience using them um, and also from, I guess, selling them as um, part of my, my day job. But the 50 and 55 Takumar lenses in particular were one of the first lenses that I started kind of buying up when I was um, doing lens adapting. I had always really liked the lenses. Um, Spotmatics were just kind of a staple camera when I was you know, growing up learning photography. I've never had one. So I picked up um, a number of them uh, for the lenses that came with bodies attached. So I ended up um, early on several years ago, many years ago with a number of Spotmatic and earlier bodies with different lenses on them. Um, the lens that I uh, gravitated towards one of the, the first lenses that I really started using quite extensively adapting to digital was the auto Takmar, um, 55 1.8. And I found pretty quickly that there were a lot of very, um, uh, subtle micro variations of this lens that were probably only produced in a few thousand or even a few hundred copies. And I, I gravitated personally towards, um, the auto Takamar 55 1.8 that has a very particular aperture ring dial that turns the wrong way. These were released in, I think, um, the saying goes 1958 or so. Uh, and the, the particular variant that I have has, uh, dots between the full aperture stops. So the, the half aperture stops, there's a white dot between, um, you know, 2, 2.8, 4, 5.6, there's a white dot in between. You'll see these if you Google the auto Takamar lens. Um, it also has an offset uh, depth of field scale where it's sort of angled, not straight lines like the later uh, Super Takamars. So I gravitated towards these because they were cheap, uh, they were old, 
uh, they do have eight blades as opposed to six blades like the later Auto and Super Takamars, and also similar to the earlier um, preset uh, ten blade version, uh, which has the auto has the lever on it uh, that you basically you know have to to arm that that lever to fire the lens when you actually take the photo. The Auto Takamar actually has the auto manual switch, so it's really the first um, first the first lens in the lineup that is. I guess what we would call an, an automatic aperture, uh, like most M42 lenses. So anyhow, I, I gravitated towards this particular lens and um, somehow gathered up, collected, I don't know, four or five of them. And they're all uh, have very similar serial numbers, very close together. And the eight blade aperture means that uh, essentially it always has a nice round opening. Uh, and I, I find this lens to be, um, it, it has a very clean, classic what i would call professional japanese look to it and i think that that was very intentional uh when they were were building these lenses for the early slrs they were meant to compete with um the german lenses uh and it has a very i would call it um i say professional clean by that i mean it has a very um a very high resolution image um it has a very uh, clean background image which you know the word bokeh was never a word that would have been used until recently, but that uh, that character of the image was was very smooth. So to me, that's like the kind of epitome of the classic um, uh, professional Japanese lens look of the fit the uh, Auto Takamar 55 1.8, which can be found in you know a dizzying number of varieties. Um, the other lens I think we were going to talk about was the Super Takamars. Uh, the 51.4 lenses, of which there are also uh, a number of versions. The one I've gravitated towards personally, well, I have probably the two versions that are considered to be the best. I have the um, the eight element uh, 51.4 that has the that extra element in it that bulges out the back of the lens. Uh, and I also, the other one that I use frequently is the SMC, which is the last uh, lens in that lineup that was made before uh, everything went to K-mount. And I find the SMC, they, they have a very similar look. I, I think it's true that the 8 element does probably win out in terms of sheer resolution and sharpness, wide open. Um, that never really would have been the way that people shot these things on film. But nonetheless, I do think that's true if you look at them adapted to digital. I do find, however, that the SMC version, the last version with the rubber focus ring, has better coatings. So I find the results to be a little bit more predictable out of that lens. But overall, the the look to my eyes between that early eight element and that last SMC version is very similar. Johnny, you've you've said something interesting to me there because you've you mentioned um, about your SMC uh, Takuma and. Mm -hmm. I was um, at first. I was thinking you were talking about the K-mount SMC, uh, but I've got a feeling you're actually talking about an M42 version. Uh, yeah. So yeah. The, so the the final version of the 50, and also the so the final version of the 51.4 and the 55 1.8 is designated SMC. So capital S, capital S, or <laughs> capital M, capital C together, no space. Uh, that's printed on the front ID ring on the lens. And th this version is um, notable in that it has a flat rubber 
uh, focus ring versus the, the earlier style, which are always a scalloped and ridged metal ring. Um, so it has a very identifiable different focus ring to it. And that, that SMC on the front uh, of the lens, the version right before that is also sometimes called the SMC, but it's printed on the, uh, on the ID ring, super dash multi dash coded. So they're both SMC, but they, uh, the nomenclature for Pentax went to just the letters SMC, which they then carried that forward uh, into the K mount line. So this is really kind of the, the last lens in the M42 line before Pentax went completely to the K mount. Carl, I know that you've had uh, a few of these lenses over the years here. They've seemed to come, come in and out of your hands. Yes. Right. So <clears throat> you guys know me and my lens buying and selling habits. And you probably could say that about any kind of lens that coming out of your hands thing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I have a habit of buying lenses, using them and then getting bored with them and selling them. And, um, and, so um, I've had four different versions of the 51.4, all M42, all seven element. And um, one of the earliest 51.4 lenses that I ever owned was the Super Tuckamar seven element. And I bought that back around the time when I was interested in Minolta lenses and I had several Rokors. Then um, had it for a while and um, at some point bought an SMC, like the one you just described with the rubber grip, also M42. Um, for some reason, I, I, I liked the Super Tuckamore original one the best of, of those two. Um, sold them after I started to, um, uh, you know, during this period of time, I bought some Yoshikas, I bought some Olympus and a variety of other um, types of 51.4s. And each time thought, oh, those are better than the others and, and kind of migrated away from these Pentax lenses and sold those. Simon was mentioning one time that the um, super multi-coated where it's all spelled out was quite good. And that's an eight blade lens, an M42 mount. And I bought one of those and I, I tried it out. But I think at that point I had um, 51.4 um, um, Nikon lenses and um, I, didn't, I didn't think it compared. And so that stayed with me for maybe two weeks and went away. And then... Um, at some point I got feeling nostalgic while I was looking at eBay one evening and thought it would be fun to have that Super Takamura again that I started with at the very beginning. And I bought another one and then um, used it and realized that, oh, I didn't think it was that special and I sold it. And so I don't have any of them now. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of my story of lenses coming in and out of my hands. They're great lenses, they're really good. Um, I, I've, I've, I've just um, now primarily been using some, some other brands. There's, there's something about, about these, these old Pentax lenses though, and the actual, the, the feel of them, especially the old metal ones. I mean, you've alluded to it there that you, you preferred the feel of the, of the older uh, Super Takimar to the, to the, to the rubberized version. Um, but it's, I mean, I come across many, many lenses, but the Super Takumas are very consistent in their yeah. quality especially like compared to say some of the, the German and, uh, and Soviet lenses where uh, the lubricant tends to dry up on them. They, I, I can't, in fact, I'm not entirely sure. I think I've ever come across a, a super tachymar without a, a, a beautifully smooth and well damped and well weighted focus ring. That, 
that's been my personal experience as well. Um, I, I, I have a really hard time thinking of when I've ever seen one that wasn't just butter smooth all the way through. And I'm turning one in my hand right now. They're just, I, I think that that's, seems to be a, uh, almost universally accepted fact that, that these lenses are just, they're really well built and they're extremely smooth. And yeah, it's, it's unusual to find them, you know, even if the exterior is really banged up, they're just, they're still butter smooth. And that seems to be also my experience with some of the um, older auto Takamars. Um, yeah. I have a couple of 55 millimeters that maybe we can talk about later, but they're just smooth as silk. And um, I've never had one either that's been bound up. And I often have with Soviet lenses and even with some of the uh, Minolta lenses that I've had. I think it's, it's probably worth going back now and, and talking about what's probably the, the, the star of these. And um, we've already touched upon it with the, the 50 millimeter F1.4, uh, which started off as, as the plain Super Takuma, but uh, there was nothing plain about it because it was an eight element lens. It was very expensive to make. It was produced to be absolutely excellent. It was a, almost like a no expense spared lens. And uh, to the point where you know, the, the legend has it that uh, for every, the, well, the Pentax were losing money on every one they sold, uh, which may or may not be true, because you, you hear about these <laughs> stories and you, you just don't know if it's marketing or whether it's actually a fact. But certainly it wasn't, I, I think it was possibly within, within two years, I think they actually dropped the, the eighth element and, uh, and they went over to a seven, a seven element version, which pretty much performed possibly identically. I don't know. I've never actually done a comparison between an eight element and a, and a seven element, but the, the performance of by, by dropping an element, the performance didn't significantly, wasn't significantly reduced. And the way that they managed to pull this trick off was to use a radioactive element. Um, the seven element version uh, used thorium in the in that in the in one of the elements, and thorium uh, is a radioactive uh, element. And um, as most people will, well, as many people will know, uh, these radioactive lenses uh, tend to have a, a yellow cast to them. Sometimes it can be it can go as far as being brown almost, but certainly uh, most of these lenses do have this this yellow cast, which can also give um, a warm look uh, to the to the actual pictures that they produce. But Carl, um, you've done quite a bit of research on this subject, but it's a bit of a hot topic at the moment, and uh, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about radioactivity in lenses. Yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, quite a large number of lenses that were made between the 40s and the 70s um, had thorium oxide um, mixed in with the glass when the when the elements were formulated, um, and they did it as a way to produce a higher quality lens um, at a at a reasonable cost. And um, the thorium oxide, for some reason, reduces chromatic aberration, and so um, making a lens with a lot less curvature than they normally would have to do to have that effect um, with thorium in it was was a way to go. And, and I, I think that's how they went from the eight to the seven element and retained um, a lot of the quality in the, in the lens. Um, if you look at the lens formula for the seven element, um, what you'll see is there's, there's three elements in the front group and then there's four in the back group, two cemented elements and then two um, additional elements. And the, the lenses that get yellow and that, that are radioactive because they have thorium in them are the last three elements. And so um, 
it's not just tacomars it's 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 many many elements of, of, of lenses that we all probably use there's a website called cameraopedia and we'll, we'll post a link to it so that you can look at the list but um, it's an extensive list that goes on for four pages of lenses that have been tested um, by that organization as being um, radioactive many of the Minolta Rokors are radioactive um, all of the Canon FL lenses um, that I've had are radioactive some of the FD cannons um, Zeiss Pancolor, Flectagon, um, some Tessars, some Fuji lenses, um, the Olympic Silver Nose, it's a radioactive lens, um, and on and on and on. Uh, I would think more of the ones that I've had um, are, have been radioactive than, than not. So let me talk a little bit about radioactivity first, and then I'll talk about yellowing, because yellowing is a result of the radioactivity that happens over time. So um, thorium, right? It's, the thorium is... Um, has an atomic weight of 232. It's radioactive. That means it's not stable and it, it releases um, particles over time and it decays eventually down to um, lead to 208. Um, it takes about 14 billion years. It's a really long process. Um, but as it's doing that, it's releasing energetic particles that, and that's what we call radiation. Um, and it's, it's mostly um, a kind of particle that physicists call alpha particles. Um, and alpha particles are not very dangerous, and the reason is they, they can't penetrate through materials very well. A sheet of paper can stop alpha particles, or a, a layer of dead skin cells on your, on your skin can block alpha radiation. So I'm not an expert in this. Um, and I'm not a human health expert. I'm not a radiation safety expert. So take what I say uh, in that context that I'm just talking about you know, how I would go about interacting with these lenses. And you have to make your own decision about your safety with, with using the lens. Um, what would I do? I, I wouldn't hold a, a super Takamar radioactive lens up against my eyeball for several minutes and do it every day for a bunch of days because I'd probably get cataracts or something like that. Or, or some other serious problems. But I would use it on a camera with a, a, a camera body between the, the lens and, and my eye, especially with an electronic viewfinder, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, in fact, if you do a little bit of reading um, and, and you um, look at the amount of exposure you, you get by using a thoriated classic lens on your camera, six hours every day of the year, um, that's about the same amount of radiation you get from, from alpha particles flying across the United States and back three times during the year. So my perspective is that that's, it's trivial and I don't worry about it. Um, it's common in nature. The things that would cause problems is if for some bizarre reason you were in a place where you got exposed to thorium dust in the air and you breathe it into your lungs, well, then you presumably could get lung cancer. Or if you ate it, you could get cancer mm. but we're not talking about that here we're, talk, we're talking about music uh, interestingly you they, wait you don't yeah, eat your yeah. lenses i thought we all yeah, no, 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 they don't taste good i don't know they're, they're they're a real bitter flavor it's not good um the, the the back element especially is really nasty so the um the, the interesting thing is you know when they were making these lenses in the 40s to the 70s they were making eyepieces out of thoriated glass. Uh, we don't usually come into contact with them, but you know, when you go into your doctor's office or, or your ophthalmologist, and you know, different uh, physicians and and people that use microscopes might have elements and uh, those kind of equipment that have thorium in the glass, and that's that's not a good thing. And I don't know which of those. I don't have a list of those. Then I don't use any of them. Um, but with, we're talking about camera lenses. It doesn't, to me, seem to be an issue. 
in my buying decision. Um, now, yellowing. Yellowing could be a decision because if you really hate it, you might not want to buy a very yellow lens. And if you go on eBay, you can see lenses that um, are super Takamars that are very clear. Probably someone has cleared the yellowing. You can see ones with a light yellowing, and you can see ones that are very, very darkly yellowed, almost to orange. And uh, I had one that was mildly yellow. I kind of liked it. It made um, for nice, warm images. And and even um, you know, if you don't like that, you can you can change the, the you can change that in Lightroom pretty easily. And it's easy to um, it's easy to deal with. What happens is when those alpha particles are emitted, um, they're energetic particles, and, and they're doing a thing um, that physicists call ionization in the glass, and it's making it turn that yellow color. And um, so what people have told me and what I've read, I've not tried it, is that you could sit um, one of these yellowed lenses up in a, uh, in a window in the sunlight for a couple of weeks, and the yellowing could go away. Or, or you could, if you want to do it quicker, there are UV lights that you can buy, and exposing it to a, a bright UV light source um, can also take care of the yellowing. Now, UV light can be harmful to your eyes, so you don't want to look directly at UV light if you're doing that. So that's, you know, my take on it from a, a non-expert. And we'll we'll put up the link to that web page so that you can you can take a look at that. Yeah, the the, the yellowing issue. I mean, my I've got a, a super. Uh, multi-coated that's uh, spelt out super multi-coated with the dashes in between and when I had that that was definitely a, a yellowed lens um, and I didn't fancy leaving it's leaving my lens out in, in in the window so I was a little bit concerned about it overheating and uh, doing something to the lubricant and, and, and things like that uh, not that you know, in the UK, we have to worry too much about things getting too hot um, in the window, but uh, that was certainly a potential. But so what I did, I, I did the research on, on the lamps. Uh, I think there's more information about it now than there was when I did this about three years ago. Um, but it was recommended, um, there's, there was a lamp recommended by IKEA. I guess they probably still do it. Um, it's called uh, Jansko, that's, and that's Jansko spelt with a J, or Jansko, as, as it appears to be spelt. And I've, I've used that on a, on a few lenses now yeah, for several days. And it's just a single LED lamp. It's not, it's not meant to be UV or anything. It's just an LED lamp. Um, and I've shone it uh, through, through, the, uh, through the lens, rotating the lens from one side to the other so that the light will come in from one side and then I'll turn it around so it entered the lens in from the other. And I'll do that for three or four days. And it would definitely uh, clean up the lens. I'm looking at my lens now, and it's I wouldn't look at it as being a particularly yellow lens by any stretch of imagination. Um, um, certainly less yellow than it was, but there's still um, a hint of that of that warmth, that yeah, that yellowness. Um, but that's actually, as I said before, it's actually one of the reasons why I actually quite like this lens. There are certain situations where you know it produces a shot that. Um, it's, it's, it's quite beautiful as a, as, a, as a result of that extra warmth. Yeah, I remember you doing some comparisons and posting them on the Facebook page. And I think you included a lens that had a little bit of yellow to it and yeah. had a warm color. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was one of them. It was, um, it's still, it can still be found on the uh, Facebook uh, group, uh, Photography with Classic Lenses. If you do a search, um, and I think actually I put a hash on it. So if you did a search on that page and do hash fast, 
um, you can see the group of tests that I did uh, about three and a half years ago. And I tested it against the my, my planar, um, a, an MD Rocore, um, and an Olympus 50 1.4. And uh, I got a fair amount of stick at the time because I messed up one of the tests for the Minolta, um, making the Minolta look not as good as it perhaps could have done. And uh, the Minolta Mafia came down on me very, very heavily for it. It's interesting about um, the effect that it's supposed to have on quality of the lens, because for a while I, I had all three versions of the Olympus um, 51.4 OM lens. Um, there's a multi-coated, there's a, like they call it a black nose, and then there's a silver nose. That's the first one. And uh, the silver nose was probably a third heavier than the other two. It was a shorter lens, and it, it was a radioactive one, and it had a little bit of yellowing, but it just killed those other two lenses in terms of sharpness. There was no, there was no comparison among those three lenses. And so, uh, based on that comparison, anyway, I, I do believe that there's something to this thorium um, addition making the making the optics a bit better. I think it's also worth just touching on one more thing on the the 51.4, and and that's how to tell the difference. Oh yeah, uh, between a, a regular Super Takamar, Super Takuma, and that's that's eight elements, and one that's mm-hmm. seven elements. Yep. Um, and the the most common and generally the easiest way to to spot it is if you look on the the depth of field gauge of mm-hmm. the lens. Um, you'll also see the marker to show you know what aperture you're on or what focus length that you're at at, that, at a given time. Well, just to the left of that, there's a marker for f4 uh, to give mm-hmm. you your depth of field at f4. And now either side of that, there will be a red mark. I mean that's the the infrared correction uh, focus correction mark. And with the eight element version, that correction mark is to the right of the marker of the F4, whereas with all the other all the other versions, it's to the left. So if you see it to the right and it says Super Takuma, then it's going to be an eight element version, or at least it should be unless somebody's done something uh, a bit naughty with it, but it's probably unlikely. Um, there are also, I think there's three, three ways. Um, I can think of two of them. So that's one way. Um, mm-hmm. I also know that the, the eight element one compared to certainly the, the later seven elements, uh, super multi-coated version I've got in front of me, um, where you've got the auto uh, and manual switch. The later lens um, has, it, has it marked up as auto and manual or man and auto. Whereas the, the original one, the eight element has got it as uh, just the letter M and A. So um, I say I'm not entirely sure if that's completely exclusive to the eight element, but it's certainly a, another thing that can help yeah. you with your uh, identification. There's, it's funny. There's a lot of, and I found this like collecting those um, early uh, auto tax, the 55. Is there's a lot of very subtle variations because they would use parts until they ran out. So they would, you know, you might find like some people will say, oh, the eight elements got a certain number stamped on the bottom of the auto manual switch. And it's like, well, it might, or it might not, you know, cause if that's that, that I've seen them with all sorts of different things stamped on the bottom. Um, and then, you know, the, the other one is just the protruding rear element on the eight element. It's, it's really noticeable. I mean, it, it sticks out beyond the housing. It's a little dome of glass on the back. So, I mean, that one is almost, I think probably the, truly foolproof way that in the uh, infrared markings tick mark inside the f4 on the depth of field scale those two seem to be 
always common to the eight element. Yeah, that, and that's that's another point actually with the, with the the rear elements uh, protruding like that. They're also called yeah. as people with uh, when they mount them on DSLRs. Yeah, uh, Canons in particular, the mm-hmm. mirror can hit the uh, the rear element when the when the lens is at infinity. I'm not sure if that applies with the later lenses, but it certainly does with the with the right. seven, with the eight element definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Carl, you've got I think uh, some other focal lengths and versions of these lenses as well. Yes, right. So I have. Well, I, I had three. I just sold one of them, so I don't have a 135 anymore. But I, I have two 55 millimeters. Um, I had heard that the um, SMC Takamar 55 1.8, which is a relatively modern one, and it has that rubber grip that you talked about, and it has, let's see how many blades. I'm going to close it down. Six blades. It was a good lens, and, and in fact, it's wonderful. Um, I, I really like it, and it's one that I won't sell. Uh, very sharp, wide open. Um, nice bokeh, and um, it's very just a nice little short lens. So it's nice to use on my um, Fuji camera if the adapter wasn't so damn long. But um, I, I like that. And then um, they're they're cheap. You can find these on eBay for about forty dollars. I was really surprised that the cost is is that low for such an exceptional lens. And then um, I was looking around one one evening at um, at lenses and I, and I saw these auto Takamar lenses and there is a very clean um, 55 1.2 and uh, I bought one of those and it's kind of like what you described Johnny it's a very bizarre looking lens it has a, um, the aperture ring on the front of the lens which is mm-hmm. different from the others that we've talked about it has a dot between each of the apertures they're black on the one that I'm holding here in my hand between the 11 and 16 and 22, there's nothing. In fact, they're so close together that it looks like one long number with with six um, six numbers in it. Um, and it has that strange uh, little, um, I don't know what it is, the silver thing on the bottom that you can slide in the groove uh, that had something to do with making an auto lens. And while, while I was holding it here in my hand, um, I've, I've, I'm opening and closing and looking at this nice 10-blade uh, aperture uh, through this beautiful clear glass, and uh, as Johnny was talking, I, I started fiddling around and I moved that metal um, thing in that groove, and then I couldn't adjust the aperture anymore. Uh, what the? <laughs> I, thought I, I, thought I, the I thought I broke the lens, but it's okay. Now, I pushed in the pin, but I pushed in the pin with my finger, and it's, it's okay again. It's working normally. <laughs> But um, I thought it was a really nice lens, too, and had a good rendering wide open um, until Simon commented on one of my photos that it looked really soft. And so I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I, I still like it. It's a, it's a kind of an artsy look to the lens, and I think it's fun to shoot. It's a really small one, too. It's, it's as short and small as, a, as almost as short and small as the, uh, as the silver nose and, and uh, a little bit. A little bit heavier, so I, I prefer that. I prefer these two, and I've kept these, and I've I've sold off all of my other fifty-one point four, the faster lenses. I'm a I'm a big fan of the um, I think it's a fifty-five, uh, the fifty-five millimeter f two point two, which is again it's a it's an auto tachymar, and uh, and it, it does it has a it can produce a bokeh that has a a, a painterly effect. Uh, and I think that's, to be fair, I think that goes along with most of them. But certainly the, you know, the 1.8, the f2s, and the the, the 2.2 lenses, they can they, they can be overlooked a little bit, um, certainly compared with the the 1.4. But they they all produce 
you know, a certain look. Uh, Johnny said it right at the top. You know, there, there is a, a look about these lenses, um, about the, 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 the Pentax lenses of, of, of the time. I'm not entirely sure if it's, if it's, if it's unique because I've used quite a few other uh, generic lenses um, of the age and they, they all tend to have a similar look. To be fair, I think the, the Pentax lenses have just got that edge on, on the refinement compared to a lot of the, the generic lenses of the day. One, one of the things Johnny mentioned to me, and I guess he has it with his lens, so it's not just that I have a lens that isn't working well, the aperture ring is really stiff to turn between apertures on the 10 blade lens. In fact, I, I, have, to, I have to take my hand and hold on to the focus ring to turn it because if I don't, the lens, um, I, I can't turn the thing with, with, without having my hand on the on the lens. It's, it'll turn, and it seems like it's working the way that it was designed. But it's, gosh, it's really a tight turn compared to any other lens that I have. That that is, I would say, somewhat common to um, preset lenses, and I'm talking about you know preset uh, lenses with usually have the aperture ring on the front of the lens, because the idea is that you didn't want that aperture setting to um, to move uh, because the important way that those lenses worked is you would, you would set that aperture setting. And then depending on, you know, which lens it is, you would be turning a second ring uh, to close the lens down to that aperture uh, right before taking the shot. Or in the case of the lens that you have, Carl, you'd be arming the lens with that metal lever. And then when you actually push the shutter button, it's going to fire that, that lever and the lens is going to stop down and open back up instantly from wherever that aperture was preset to. So yeah, a lot of those are tend to be a little tighter. Um, I have a lot of old, you know, Zeiss uh, Jenna lenses that have a double or a, a single or a double preset aperture and they all tend to have a little bit more resistance. You know, some are actually very loose, but uh, most tend to have a, a bit of resistance so that 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 lens is stopping uh, positively at the indicated stop. Yeah. yeah. So Johnny, tell us about your latest acquisition. Uh, so I, I have here in my hands what I would call the Simon killer, because I know how fond he is of this camera and lens combination. So what I have in my hands is a Topcon RE Super oh uh, SLR from about, I think it was 1963. Um, incredibly well-built camera was the first SLR with TTL uh, metering, so open aperture metering, big advance at the time. Um, considered the, I guess the the only real competitor in its class at the time was the uh, Nikon F, and in a lot of ways, some folks consider this camera to be a bit more advanced than that one. Um, the reason I think Simon is not a fan of this uh, camera, and he can he can describe that, it is it's very angular, it's very large, it's very heavy. Um, it also uses the exact amount, which uh, may, in retrospect, have been a mistake or the thing that limited this uh, this camera system in terms of its uh, ability to compete in the marketplace at the time. But I have on on my Topcon right here, I have an old uh, Tessar, uh, Carl Zeiss Jenna Tessar 2.8 50mm lens. It's the, the small preset version, as we were talking about preset lenses, where you... Um, turn the ring uh, on the front here, set the aperture, and then you close that lens down right before taking the photo. So I find it to be a beautiful, beautiful combination of lens and camera. Uh, and it makes this great sound. 
So um, I'm going to be playing around with this one this week, putting a, a roll of film through, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, as as Johnny alludes there, I've got a bit of history with this this, this camera. Um, I, I bought one, I'm not sure if it was last year or the year before, um, exact same model of the RE Super, and I bought it because it also had with it a top core 58mm 1.4, which is um, one of the lenses that was on my bucket list. I just, just wanted to give it a go and uh, and try it out because it's, a, it's, it's an absolutely huge lens um, for, for for the focal length. Um, and it's beautifully made it, it, and it, it handles wonderfully. Um, and the, the, when it's paired, when it's mounted with the, with the RE Super, it, it just looks amazing. Um, you know, it's, I, could, I could just take pictures of that camera and lens combination all day long. But the reality of using it for me didn't didn't match up with with the looks of it. Um, you know, apart from having a, a, a front mounted shutter button, which you know it, it's it's forgivable. It's also understandable by, with it using the the exact amount. Um, but it, it, the, just the camera, it was it was very heavy. Um, but and there seems to be like hardly any um, nothing was really given for ergonomics. It was a case of these. This is how a camera works. These are where the buttons go, and then you just have to mould yourself around it. Um, and I found when I was actually physically using the camera rather than just playing with it in the way that the Johnny's got it at the moment, which, uh, by the sounds of it, he hasn't got any film in it. Um, I think when Johnny goes out and actually uses the camera and uses the meter of the camera, uh, it, it might start to feel that. Actually, yes, it was ahead of its time, but it was using perhaps all, an old way of thinking for a more modern solution, which is probably where the uh, the, the the Nikon, when 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 they finally got uh, TTL metering, they probably did a better um, a better implementation of it, and hence why it's uh, such a, a legendary camera. So so no, I'm I'm not a huge fan of it, and uh, and you know Johnny also uh, mentioned that he's got a Tessar on it, and the um, many many people might not know, but I find Tessars to be the most boring lens in the entire world. Um, <laughs> so, um, so there, there, there we go. And I, I will admit, I probably have a bit of a uh, new lover infatuation with this camera because, uh, truth be told, I hate big SLRs. <laughs> this thing is a beast. So, I, how much I'll end up actually using it, you know, we'll see. But it, it's great to look at. Um, it sounds great. I I, I like having a camera i can put my old preset exacta lenses on and enjoy more than maybe using an actual exacta um so it, it, it it'll be fun to use but um you know i suspect that there are certainly some ergonomic flaws to this beast that uh i i may not like as much over time so how about you call well you, you probably know that um for christmas my wife bought me a canon s rangefinder and it had a LTM 50 1.4 lens on it. And I've been using that a lot. I just love that camera. It's fantastic to shoot. And the images have been coming out great so far, uh, black and white. And um, early um, in the year, someone posted on the um, Vintage Camera Facebook page, um, what are you going to buy in 2018? And so I said, uh, well, my New Year's resolution is that I'm going to get a 35 millimeter LTM lens to use on this camera, and it's kind of an interesting, funny story because I've I've loved the 50 millimeter focal length since I've had an Olympus, 
uh, <laughs> just cutting off a lot of the image um, with a small sensor, and I've liked it on my Fuji. Um, and um, and now now I have I have this lens on a full frame film camera, and I don't think it's wide enough. <laughs> and the reason is <laughs> purely in my head because every time I look through that viewfinder, I see those blasted frame lines, and realize I'm not seeing, I'm not getting the whole picture captured when I take the photo. And um, and and I think also when I shoot with these rangefinders, I I like to have a wider a wider shot. I'm, I'm not shooting it to, to shoot bokeh shots and close-ups. I'm, I'm taking wider pictures pictures of groups of people and things like that. And so um, it seemed like a, a lens that I'd really like. And I'm not holding anything in my hand like Johnny was, but I have a picture of the lens on my phone that hopefully is on the way from Japan. And um, hopefully it won't have balsam separation like the 50 millimeter one does when it arrives. But it looks really beautiful in the picture. It has the aperture ring on the front of the lens like I like. It has um, eight uh, it has 10 blades, and it was just a little over $300. And I think that was a good price because it was listed as mint. And when I buy lenses from Japan, I, I almost always um, try to get a lens that's mint. And I haven't had any problems with lenses that are listed as mint. So maybe in a week, I'll have this baby on my camera, and I'll be out shooting some, some wider photos. We'll see how that goes. And I've got a new arrival, which uh, I've got in my hand today. And I've also been spreading information about this over over social media today because I'm, I'm quite excited about it. In fact, I'm just going to wind it on now and press a button. Oh, and that's the sound of a Hasselblad 500cm. And I picked it up on Friday and as soon as I got home, I managed to jam the thing uh, through just general incompetence about how to actually use these cameras because they, they are pretty cut well they're simple once you know what you're doing but yeah they've a, there's a little bit more to them than a, a regular um, 35 millimeter slr um, but yeah it's just a thing of beauty um i've wanted one of these forever um and now i've got one so uh, i need to go out and actually use it but the only problem is i've got six cameras with film in them that really i should actually do something about them before i start to play with this one so uh tough time ahead of me really Hey, at least it's only uh, twelve shots on that roll there, Simon. anybody can you, anybody can get through twelve shots, right? Come on. Yeah, that, that, that's 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 right in theory. Yeah, um, but uh, I mean, one of the cameras I've got, I've, I mean, just just to give an example of the six cameras I've got with film on it on them. I've got a, a Leica 3G, which you would think that <laughs> how could I still have film in that on, with a Leica 3G? Um, and it's beautiful, um, and. And I've also got a, a Bronica ETRS uh, with two. I've, I've got film in two backs on on that one. Um, so I mean, I've got some great cameras uh, to 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 shoot with, but I just need to get myself through. But I'm hoping that this is going to give me the motivation to get out there and uh, take some shots. Few I think things, we'll, few things we'll, in life more motivating than a Hasselblad. That I yeah. mean, that's for sure. Absolutely. And I imagine that we're all in that similar boat. I have film in a Nikon FA. I have film in my Bessa, my Voigtlander Bessa. I have film in my um, Canon 7. I have film in um, three point-and-shoot cameras. And I had film in a, a Pentax ME that I decided I didn't want anymore, and I sold it. And so I took the roll out with about six or seven exposures and just threw it away. And it had been there for over a year anyway. And I don't even know what the pictures were. What what lens do you have on the Hasselblad? Uh, I've got a couple. Currently, uh, well, actually, over the weekend, I had the lens stuck 
on the camera because I couldn't get it off. Um, um, and that's a, a Coles Ice Planar 80mm f2.8 and it's a relatively late version as well. Um, and so uh, with the, the format being a 6x6 format, that's 6 centimeters by 6 centimeters. Um, an 80 millimeter lens is effectively the equivalent of a 50 millimeter lens on full frame and 35 millimeters, except it's not quite because you 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 get more around the edges as well. So you mm-hmm. you get the same you get the same perspective uh, or magnification if you like, but you also get more going on around the edges than, than you would do with a with a 50 mil. Um, but I've also got a uh, 50 millimeter uh, f4 Distagon as well which again that sounds like it's a, a, a normal focal length but it's actually a wide angle on this um, and they're both just beautiful lenses to look through and the you know you look through the viewfinder on, on a med- and well, pretty much any medium format camera and you just get this wonderful um, 3d view uh, that you just don't quite get with uh, with 35 millimeter or on a, a full frame camera for that matter yeah absolutely this is bad because it's making me want something that i don't I don't have money to afford. And there's a there's a guy in our camera club that meets at once a month, and he shoots with the Hasselblad with that 80 mil lens on it that you're talking about. And every time I see it, I think, man, I would love to have that camera. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, Johnny, um, how can people keep up with you? Uh, best way for me is Instagram. Uh, I am at Sisson Photography. It's S-I-S-S-O-N Photography, all S's. And that uh, is kind of a gateway into everything else that I do. And you come? Okay, sure. And you can see my f- photos posted on our Facebook page pretty much every day. And uh, also I'm, I have a Flickr page and it's just Carl with a K, Havens. And I try to keep that up to date on a weekly basis and, and uh, stick my the photos that I think are the best there. I don't know if they're really that good. And so those are the two places. And I can be found in a few places. I'm on Instagram as Simon P. Forster. I'm on Twitter as Simon Four. That's Simon F-O-R, all is one word. Uh, you can find me uh, listed under Simon Forster or It's Fozzy on Flickr. And you can also find my eBay shop if you do a search for It's Fozzy. And you can find all of us on the Facebook group, Photography with Classic Lenses. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and it'll be great if you can join us all again next week. Thank you.